When I was in boarding school in Malaysia, in high school, a kid named Steve Klippenstein, uh, one grade below me, worked out every afternoon in our makeshift weight room behind our, our dorm. His one goal uh, on, on which he was fixated was to beat me in arm wrestling. <laughs> I, I could see him from my dorm room furiously working out. Every few weeks he would challenge me to an arm wrestle and I beat him every time. <laughs> and with little effort. Um, <laughs> I, I, I never worked out. Every time I would tell Steve, it's, Steve, it's all in the wrist, and he just kept on hoisting heavy weights to no avail. My wrists were naturally stronger than Steve Klippenstein's. They were built for arm wrestling, <laughs> I guess. His, his weren't. Um, don't challenge me to an arm wrestle. I don't today, please. I don't know what my... Um, in today's gospel reading, Jesus' religious opponents are once again trying to beat him, Jesus, with questions they hope would entrap him. They, they plotted, they consulted together, they worked at it. They came up with verbal snares to try to induce Jesus to say something which might prove incriminating. And every time he beat them, without ever working out, that is, I don't think he practiced and refined his arguments to better debate the Pharisees. Um, they were uh, among the best uh, minds in the country, I presume. Uh, so how did he beat them every time without trying? The obvious answer, I guess you would say, is that Jesus was very smart, perhaps the smartest guy in the room. It's helpful to be smart. But what's it? Walker Percy said, smart ain't necessarily good. <laughs> and of course, this is not the only reason Jesus was able to outmaneuver them, or even the biggest reason. Jesus not only thought with his brain, he thought with his heart also. Research indicates that we are at our, we are at our best, we are at our best when we actually do think with our hearts. And scientists have demonstrated that certain chemicals released from the heart are responsible for stimulating the part of the brain that makes compassionate choices. And I read an entire book on the subject, uh, because you never want to say something without <laughs> packing it up, uh, The Heart-Mind Matrix, How the Heart Can Teach the Mind New Ways to Think. Um, so when we really want to get to the, to the essence of things in a conversation, the deep stuff that moves us, we, we say, let's, let's have a heart-to-heart. -heart. We don't say, let's have a brainstorm. When something is pouring, someone is pouring out their heart, you don't say, mm, let's think this through, shall we? Um, Jesus did not go head-to-head -head in, his, in his encounters with people. And all of them, except for demons, so I guess we're not people, and demons are thinkers, not feelers. Um, he seeks to establish a deep connection. His stories were meant to engage, to move people, and not merely entertain or inform. And it's interesting, this is perhaps especially true of the Pharisees with whom he has so much interaction and becomes very emotional in his response to them as a mixture of anger and sadness. If you look forward a chapter, uh, Jesus' lament in Matthew 23, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would gather you under my wings, how I long to gather you. And after he has debated the scribes and Pharisees and really gone after them, he mourns for them and all Jerusalem with them. Our Jewish friends caution us not to vilify the Pharisees as we so often do. I don't have time in this sermon to talk about the ways in which Christians with all best, best intentions are quite often heartless in our treatment of the Pharisees. So we must keep that in mind too. 
That being said, as we look at our story, there is a difference between an intellectual argument and intelligence. The religious leaders mostly went, Jesus, went after Jesus with their intellect and their self-justifying intellect at that. They were not curious and open and desiring real conversations. They were trying to beat him with brain power. But we also know that some Pharisees broke away and at you know, the still of the night, they came because they were wondering. They were curious, they wanted to know. But in this instance, Jesus responds, not with an intellect so much as with intelligence, the natural state of the heart that brings coherence and meaning to our lives. And this story is naturally funny, as are many of these stories in the Gospels, full of comic irony. These guys flatter Jesus, not by going over the top, not by laying it on thick, but by telling him what is absolutely true about him. It's not hyperbole. They say, Jesus, you are true. You teach the way truthfully. You don't care about popular opinion. You are, not, you are not impressed by status. But then, rather than engaging with Jesus on the basis of this truth, having a heart-to-heart, -heart, they try to entrap him with the brain question. Jesus, tell us what you think. Pay Caesar or not. This is an either-or question. And they hope he takes the bait by answering either or and falling into the trap they have set for him. But Jesus doesn't think about it. At least I don't think he thinks about it. It doesn't indicate that he does. He responds immediately, intuitively, and deeply. Their question was contrived. Jesus' answer is not. It's genuine, like Jesus. It's simple and true and to the point, and it cuts right to the heart. Jesus answers their either or with a both and. You can't have it both ways, we often say, when both ways is the only way we want it. And Jesus here is saying, yeah, we can have it both ways. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. To go from either or to both and, we need to stretch our minds and engage our hearts. Most of life is paradoxical. And living in the tension of paradox opens us up to wonder, curiosity, questions, imagination, creativity, to life itself. If you'll allow me a, a metaphor, ideas that are not filtered through the heart and given breath by the lungs can become deadening and deadly. And when ideas become ideologies, they can become murderous. the heart, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The Trinity itself, fundamental to our theology, is a paradox of love by which God becomes man to love us while remaining God who can save us. It's interesting, the early heresies surrounding the Trinity were univocal, only one possible meaning. Heresies insisted you can't have it both ways. Jesus is either God or man but not both. We need the both and for salvation to enter into the kingdom of God. While the question Caesar or God is restrictive intended to bind, Jesus' response is expansive and freeing. For Jesus, certainly, but also for his antagonists. He won't be trapped. He can't be trapped because Jesus, perfectly imaging his father, is perfectly free as his father is free. And in that freedom, 
Jesus is not bound by religious or political structures, not even when he is killed by those systems because he has decided that he will die and in his death he exercises perfect freedom to liberate, liberate the entire world from the forces of sin and evil. As I was writing the sermon, I was looking at the collect also and I, it, it ignited me. I mean, the collect says, set us free, loving Father, from the bondage of our sins and in your goodness and mercy give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do we live in that freedom? And of course, Jesus uses an image with them. He's, a picture paints a thousand words. He shows them a picture to answer their question with incontrovertible evidence to reveal who Caesar is and what he owns and what he has done to the Jewish, to the Jewish people and for the Jewish people. And Jesus says, give to him what is his. He shows them what's apparent, what's, what's obvious from that image. And then he goes deeper. The image of Caesar reveals by contrast, by, by via negativa or the apophatic, if you want to use that language, reveals the one who can't be captured or reduced to an image. Pay the guy in the coin, it's his coin, and give everything else to the one who can't be coined. Caesar needs his image on a coin. It's the power of the purse to control the world. Let you know who's boss, who needs you to give him what he needs from you. God doesn't, because God does not have any needs. He doesn't need you and me. He doesn't need what we give him. They are merely tokens of what he wants, and God does want massively what he wants is us, all of us, and when he has us, we have him. What a marvelous exchange. We have all of God so that when we think we have nothing, when all has been taken away from us, in faith we realize we do indeed have everything. Our, our, our Old Testament reading, the Tanakh, Malachi, I turn to me and I will turn to you, says God. And that is the very nature of love. Love is generative. And because it's generative, it's generous. The more love you have, the more life you have, and the more love and life you have to give. And everything we give is an expression and an outpouring of love. We pay taxes to the ruling power because we have to. It's a civic duty. It's a calculus, a formula, for which we are always thinking of ways to outmaneuver to pay less. <laughs> and we give to God not what we have to, but what we, what we want to as an act of love. So there is, of course, a world of difference, a kingdom of difference between rendering to Caesar and giving to God. That difference is love. We might say, how can I pay less? We never say, how can I love less? I've only got so much to live. I'm running out uh, to love, to give. I'm, I'm running out of love. Those of you who have siblings, did you ever ask your mom and dad, who do you love more? Or who do you love the most? As if love was limited and had to be rationed out. Uh, today is the last day of our stewardship drive. Uh, I was thinking about giving. Well, I better have been thinking about giving. <laughs> it is a stewardship drive after all. But if your heart is here, 
If your heart is here with these people of God, if we are beloved to each other, we will give. What we give, God always multiplies in ways beyond imagining, in ways that make us marvel and wonder, even as the Pharisees and the Herodians marveled and wondered at Jesus. They were left in awe because they knew they were facing the king who had everything and gives us everything. This is why and how we stay together in church, even if we have profound disagreements with each other, we stay for love. We might come for the liturgy, the doctrine, the teaching, the preaching. We might come with a friend, whatever it might be. But we stay for love. Amen.